Section 4 of The Early Hanoverians by Edward Ellis Morris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Book 1, Chapter 4, First Measures. Just seven weeks after the death of Queen Anne, King George landed at Greenwich. It was on a Sunday evening, and there was a large concourse to welcome the new king, including the Archbishop of Canterbury and the Duke of Marlborough, and all the more prominent peers of both parties. The king, however, made a marked distinction in the way in which he received them. To the Whigs he was very gracious. On the Tories he turned his back. From this time forward it became quite evident that all his support would be given to the former party. A few days before the king's arrival, he had sent orders that Bolingbroke should be deprived of office, and the orders had been carried out almost with rudeness, certainly without the respect that should have been shown to the fallen statesman. This is Bolingbroke's own comment on his treatment. To be removed was neither matter of surprise nor of concern to me, but the manner of my removal shocked me for at least two minutes. I am not in the least intimidated from any consideration of the Whig malice and power, but the grief of my soul is this. I see plainly that the Tory party is gone. The succession of King George to the throne was a critical point in the history of party government. It is possible that if King George had known how to hold the balance between the two parties, the system of government by a cabinet entirely drawn from one party might never have prevailed. The ablest man in his former dominions, though he had shown his ability in other matters rather than in politics, the philosopher Leibniz, strongly advised George not to recognize parties in England, but to choose his ministers from Whigs or Tories indiscriminately, to choose the best man for each particular office irrespective of their political views. Other counsels, however, prevailed, and the behavior of the king on his landing, his turning his back upon the Tory peers, and refusal even to be civil to them, were merely external signs that the Tories were to be excluded from office. The sympathies of the first two Georges were entirely with the Whigs. The third George made an attempt to be rid of party domination, an attempt which proved unsuccessful and, it may almost be said, disastrous. George I was not a remarkably intelligent man, but he knew perfectly clearly the limits of his power. It seems strange that he should have been allowed to grow up entirely ignorant of the English language, especially when we consider that his mother was an accomplished linguist. But not until the death of Queen Anne's son, the young Duke of Gloucester, did there seem to be any prospect that the English throne would pass to the House of Hanover, and when the Duke of Gloucester died, George was well over forty, and at that age most men do not take kindly to grammars and exercise books. In consequence of King George's ignorance of English, it was futile for him to preside at meetings of the cabinet, and exceedingly difficult for him to understand the character of bills to be proposed or measures to be taken. The result was that the position of the sovereign was changed, and according to the French epigram, henceforth the English king was a constitutional king who reigns, but does not govern. 
as King George could not hold the balance between the two parties, he lent wholly to one, and from this time forward government by one party at a time became the rule in English politics. In the reign of William III and Anne there had been an approximation to this state of things, but the change was now complete. In one department only of public affairs did the king still keep and exercise influence, the relations with foreign governments. In the foreign policy of the nation, King George had a considerable, and not in all respects, a salutary power. Naturally, but unfortunately, England became involved in quarrels which concerned Hanover rather than England. This was shown in a matter that took place very shortly after the beginning of the reign. Bremen and Verden are two districts upon the river Weser, lying between Hanover and the sea. They had been independent bishoprics, but at the end of the Thirty Years' War had fallen to Sweden as part of her share of the spoils. For over sixty years they continued outlying possessions of Sweden. At the end of that time they had been conquered by Denmark, whilst Charles II, King of Sweden, defeated by Russia at the Battle of Poltava, remained in voluntary exile in Turkey. The King of Denmark offered to sell them to George for the sum of £150,000, on condition that Hanover would join Denmark against Sweden. The purchase was made, no one thinking of taking into account the feelings of the unfortunate inhabitants, who as Germans would very likely have preferred Hanover, and an English fleet was sent into the Baltic, but luckily never came to fighting. Nevertheless, it was evident that England was risking the chance of a war with Sweden for the sake of Hanover, and there was little reason for wonder when Charles Twelfth, having in a manner worthy of a hero of romance returned from Turkey, declared that he would help the pretender. According to old English law, the death of a king or queen involved the dissolution of Parliament. The lawyers argued that the reigning sovereign was the head of the Parliament, and the head failing, the whole body was extinct. But shortly before the accession of George I, in the reigns of William III and of Anne, the fear of a dispute as to the succession was so strong that practical needs overcame the arguments of the lawyers and new statutes were passed, allowing the Parliament in being to continue for a period of six months after the death of the Sovereign. On the very day that Queen Anne died, albeit a Sunday, Parliament met. The members took the oaths to King George and proceeded to vote dutiful addresses. The civil list or income allowed to the Sovereign was fixed at £700,000, the same amount as under Queen Anne though the Tories, anxious to win the favour of the new king, wished to raise the amount to a million. There chanced to be some arrears of pay due to the Hanoverian troops. When, in 1712, the English troops under the Duke of Ormond had been withdrawn from the army of the Grand Allies, the Hanoverian troops in English pay refused to obey orders, counting the withdrawal as a desertion in the face of the enemy. A great dispute arose as to their pay. The Tories, who wished the war closed and admired the withdrawal of the English troops, had voted resolutely against the payment of the Hanoverians. The Whigs, who were all for Marlborough and the war, admired the conduct of the Hanoverians and wished to pay them. 
but circumstances alter cases, and the ruler of Hanover having become king of England, the motion to pay the troops was carried without opposition. A reward of no less than one hundred thousand pounds was offered to anyone who should seize the pretender in case of his landing. The parliament was then prorogued. After the king's arrival and within the six months allowed by the law, the parliament was dissolved by proclamation and a new parliament called. In the proclamation by which the new parliament was summoned, the ministers most improperly invited the electors in their choice of candidates to have a particular regard to such as showed a firmness to the Protestant succession when it was in danger. The result of the general election was a large Whig majority, and during the remainder of this reign and through all the next, the Whigs had exclusive possession of power. With a new reign and a new House of Commons, it would have been wise to have made a fresh start. But the Whig ministers were unwilling to forego an opportunity for revenge. At the beginning of the first session, a committee of the House of Commons was appointed to consider all the circumstances relating to the Treaty of Utrecht. This committee did its work elaborately, for the reading of its report occupied five hours, and on conclusion of the reading it was determined that Bolingbroke and Oxford should be impeached for their share in the treaty. A few days later it was likewise determined to impeach the Duke of Ormond, the general who had withdrawn the troops from the Allied army. Impeachment means prosecution by the House of Commons before the House of Lords. Bolingbroke had apparently gauged the temper of the House, for he fled the country even before the report of the committee was made. The Duke of Ormond fled also. But Robert Harley, Earl of Oxford, the late Prime Minister, stood his ground and was committed to the Tower. The story goes that Ormond, before flying, urged Oxford also to escape, and being unable to persuade him, took his leave with the words, Farewell, Oxford, without a head. To which the reply came at once, Farewell, Duke, without a duchy. Oxford preserved his head, but Ormond lost his duchy, for the trial of the former before his peers was delayed over a space of two years, during which the Jacobite rising was entirely suppressed, and a change in the direction of clemency had come over the minds of the ministers. At the end of the two years, the charges were dropped and Oxford released. Against Bolingbroke and Ormond in their absence, bills of attainder were passed. These proceedings were highly impolitic, if indeed they were not absolutely unjust. The Treaty of Utrecht was made because the English people were tired of the war with France. The manner of bringing about the treaty was in the highest degree unsatisfactory. The treatment of the Allies was dishonorable. The Duke of Ormond, when appointed to succeed Marlborough as commander-in-chief, received definite orders, known as the Restraining Orders, by which he still appeared to be fighting on the side of the Allies, whilst in reality he was to carry on no operations against the French. But Ormond, as a soldier, had to obey orders, and the conduct of the two ministers, Harley and Bolingbroke, however disgraceful, had been known to and approved by two distinct parliaments. These considerations should have saved them from prosecution, 
but the violence of the Whigs helped to drive the Tories into more violent opposition. Bolingbroke, it is believed, was quite willing to let bygones be bygones, and would have accepted office under King George. Within twelve months of his accession, he received the seals as Secretary of State to the Pretender, joining himself to the mock court which the latter maintained at Paris. End of section 4